From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Hannah Cunningham. And my name is Curtis Blandy. We would like to begin this episode by acknowledging that Terra Informa is a production of CGSR 88.5 FM, a campus and community recording studio located in Edmonton, Alberta. We are situated on Treaty 6, the historic and present territory of the Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, and Dene, and many other First Peoples that live and gather here. When you listen to this week's episode, consider your connection to this land, the connections of those that came before you, and the connections of those that will come after. Wherever you are in the world, dear listener, we hope it's been warmer than it has been in the Canadian prairies. The deep freeze that has taken hold of us here in Edmonton over the past week has been no joke. So we thought it might be nice to listen back to a story that involves green living things. This week, we're bringing you an archive episode from March 2019, where Terra Informer Amanda Rooney interviewed Dr. Natasha Myers, a professor of anthropology at York University. In the interview, they discuss things like our relationships with plants and how you might be able to reconceptualize them, planthropology, and the planthropocene. We'll also share a few thoughts from some attendees of our Terra Informa recruitment event about their most memorable relationships with plants. So without further ado, enjoy this week's chlorophyll episode. Welcome back to Terra Informa. My name is Carter Grositza. And I'm Sophia Osborne, and we'll be your host for the next 30 minutes of environmental news from across Canada and around the world. Now for this week's story. Terra Informer Amanda Rooney is no stranger to the Anthropocene. It's a term that brings with it an emotional heaviness. Natasha Myers is a professor at York University who wrote a satirical guide titled How to Grow a Livable World in 10 Not-So-Easy Steps which is playfully described as an incantation to be used to conjure up new worlds. Some of Meyer's other works involve looking at science and scientists through an anthropological lens. Amanda had a chance to interview Natasha Myers about her work, Radical Thinking, and her relationships with plants. My name is Amanda Rooney, and I am a fourth-year environmental studies student at the University of Alberta. So I've spent the last few years of my degree being introduced to concepts that are used to understand our relationships to the living world. More recently, I've been learning a lot about the Anthropocene. It's a term that's very hot right now in both academia and pop culture. So one day when I was noodling around on the internet looking at Anthropocene-related things, I came across a 10-step guide called How to Grow Livable Worlds, 10 Not-So-Easy Steps. The author of the guide is Natasha Myers, a professor at York University. The guide is actually pretty satirical, poking fun at all the blank easy steps to blank that are floating around on the internet today. Myers describes the guide as an incantation to be used to conjure up new worlds. 
She emphasizes the need for art, experiment, and radical disruption to envision new ways of being. I was struck by the balance between dire urgency and Meyer's playful attitude. The guide really helped me break out of my Anthropocene-induced slump and helped me reconceptualize how I think about science and my relationship with plants. I came to anthropology um, from environmental studies, and I came to environmental studies from biology, and from specifically plant biology. So I've had a very strange trajectory um, through my interests. Um, first, as a very young person, uh, dancing. I was a dancer, um, trained in classical ballet and um, modern dance, and then became a plant biologist. Well, I kept dancing and later um, found a way to weave together my dance practice and my passion for plants in thinking about ways to um, uh, rethink our relationship with the environment in an environmental studies degree. And then from somehow in that space, I discovered um, uh, an area uh, many know as feminist science studies. Science studies are science and technology studies, but with a, a, a very strong feminist orientation. And um, and perhaps that's where some of the radical thinking uh, that I'm interested in comes in, is through the kinds of ways that feminist scholars have challenged um, science as a, as a source, in a sense, of racialization, as a source of um, uh, colonial uh, power um, and science as kind of an instigator um, and an accomplice to capitalist projects. There's a whole range of ways that um, science really compelled my interest, both from being a practicing scientist to someone um, thinking alongside scientists and trying to figure out ways to challenge um, the hegemony of scientific thinking. And even more so, the hegemony of the ways that non-scientists think about science. What really made me interested in talking to Dr. Myers was this concept that she introduces in her 10-step guide to growing more livable worlds. And the concept is... Plantthropocene. After taking a course called Anthropocene Feminism, I've been really interested in the term, the Anthropocene, and the politics around it. So I'll take a moment to catch you up to speed. The Anthropocene is a suggested term for the next geologic epoch. It is aptly named with the prefix anthropos to suggest that humanity is the largest driver of climactic change. Within academia, there have been significant critiques of the term suggesting that it is overly anthropocentric at a time when we should be paying attention to other beings and systems. There has also been pushback against implicating all of humanity as responsible for climactic change, since some of us have done more to contribute to the problem across space and time than others. As you'll hear from Dr. Myers, her idea of the Planthropocene counters Anthropocene thinking. That makes you think, oh my gosh, we're all going down, grab your stuff and run. And she tries to encourage you to think about those beings that make life possible. So um, I fell in love with plants uh, while I was doing an undergraduate degree in plant biology, and um, I feel like I've been abducted by them and that I'm doing their work. 
um, that they have put me to work. And so I took, I did my master's degree on plants. And then for my PhD, I took a little break from them. And then I came back to them. And I've just been uh, following them anywhere, everywhere they lead me. And, um, and at one point, I realized that what I was practicing uh, was a form of plantropology. What I was interested in was that profound relationship between plants and people which is at the core of all of our economies. It's at the core of all of our cultures. It's at the core of all of our uh, capacities to live and breathe on this planet. And I, what I want to be able to highlight in my inquiry is that deep, profound relation. What would happen if we centered not just the anthropos, but the planthropos as a singular figure, one that is already the coming together of many, many, many other beings? And so when I think about the plantropos, I understand that the relationship of people to plants is that people are not just connected to plants, people are not just dependent on plants. We are of the plants. And so, in fact, plants created the possibility for us to be. Um, and so this is uh, an awakening to the fact that plants were the creatures who actually terraformed the planet um, billions of years ago to create a habitable world that we uh, that we rely on now. And so if we start to recognize our kinship as kind of a fundamental inextricable kinship between plants and people, we need to we need to we need a new figure um, that no longer sees humans as separate from, no longer sees humans as dominating plants, no longer sees humans as um, uh, as just the gardeners um, moving plants around in the world, here we have an opportunity to focus on the profound relation, the inextricable relation between plants and people. So the planthropos and that figure sparked for me um, a really profound thinking about the age that we're in right now. And so we've all heard the term the Anthropocene. Mm -hmm. And the Anthropocene, which names man as the singular agent who is responsible for our current planetary crisis. What I wanted to highlight is where the Anthropocene is about the naming of a geological era that will be the end of us and the end of the planet. The Anthropocene intervenes by proposing not a geological era, but an mm -hmm. aspirational way of thinking about how we can get to know the world that asks us to, to remember that we are of the planet and that we are here only because they are here, and that our future hinges on their future. It's a shift in our attention from the dire horror that we do currently face now to say, all is not lost. Um, in fact, we already have here in our midst ongoing rad radical solidarity projects that plants have cultivated with people for millennia wait a second, all we need to do is name our most powerful ally, plants. And then we will begin, if we can begin to form livable relationships with them, relations with plants that allow plants to flourish and allow people to flourish alongside their plants, we would actually create conditions that could alter what so many see as the unavoidable future of apocalypse. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Terra Informa, a production of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton, Alberta, 
located on Treaty 6 territory. This is an archive episode from March 2019 featuring Terra Informer Amanda Rooney and Dr. Natasha Myers, a professor of anthropology at York University. So don't get too far ahead of yourself and think that Natasha Myers is suggesting that we should end humanity. Humans are not inherently disconnected from the landscapes that support us. Many societies and individuals still embrace values that respect the power and the necessity of plants. Noda says, you know, we need people, and we need specifically those anthropos not seen, which is a beautiful term coined by Marisol de la Cadena. Those anthropos seen who are those people who colonialism and capitalism try to basically wipe out. And those are the people who actually have never forsaken the depth of their relationship with plants. So these are the indigenous people, these are the local people, these are the gardeners, the farmers, the hunters, the herbalists, the shaman all over the world who have deep, close, and abiding relationships with plants um, that foster healing relationships with land, that, you know, people who are growing foods in ways that enrich soils rather than deplete them, people who are harvesting uh, from forests in ways that um, create new possibilities for those uh, forests, those features. And so for me, the difference between the Anthropocene and the Planthropocene is, on the one hand, the Anthropocene is indebted to colonialism and capitalism. The Anthropocene is made by colonial impulses and by capitalist extraction. The Planthropocene requires that we break the world that capitalism has made, that we break the world that colonialism has has shaped for us. And we disrupt those relationships as dramatically as possible so that we can get down to the business of growing livable worlds. So you kind of mentioned this like that cultivating deeper, more um, reciprocal relations with plants. Um, do you have any other like concrete examples that um, people could maybe relate to of like cultivating a positive relationship with plants? Mm. Yeah. So I mean, there's so many ways to do that, and, and um, it begins with us recognizing that we we live in a world where you know every piece of land has been enclosed. Um, by some law, by some concrete, by a fence, by a wall, and every bit of earth, including like the the bits of earth in our potted plants on our window sill, on the pots that are so buckets, pots, little tiny garden pots. All of these are kinds of enclosures that that humans have made. I, I you know, national park boundaries, uh, state boundaries, etc. All of these um, we have already enclosed the plants in a very human world. And, um, but those enclosures uh, don't have to work as just impositions. And they also can foster really important spaces for plants to be, for people to begin to relate well to plants. And so I want to think about the possibility of people building relationships with the plants on their windowsill, with the trees outside their homes, with forests, with, with lands where we grow our food, in the cracks in the pavement, on the sidewalk. The first thing involved in this is a kind of an awakening to the plant worlds around us, which includes awakening to, oh my God, why is there so much concrete? Like, 
how is it that we can, how can we shape a livable relationship with plants and trees if there is so much concrete? If there are, if, you know, we're um, pumping pesticides into the soil, if we're um, filling the air with noxious fumes, if we're um, pouring salt on the roadways uh, through the winter. So, so part of it is an awakening to, wait a second, what are these plants up to and where are they all and where have we put them? <laughs> like, yeah. where have we placed them? And ask ourselves, how are we staging our relationships with plants? For me, and I think in popular culture, when you think of like an apocalyptic post-human kind of snapshot would be this like city that's like concrete crumbling and there's all these plants growing everywhere. And it's interesting to kind of think of, of that, but also humans not being absent, humans like being in that and like mm-hmm. conspiring mm-hmm. with the plants to kind of create this landscape. Yeah. How do we not read um, plant exuberance as a site of cultural ruin is really what I'm thinking about. How do we actually look at co-flourishing, figuring out a way to build our cities in ways that always create affordances for plants? Some people are very worried when I say, let plants grow where they want to, because we we do have a very serious problem with plants that are uh, taking over. So these plants that many call invasive species, where they're plants that are paved. And what I want to point us to in those circumstances is that, you know, whose fault is it that, <laughs> that, uh, that the plants are taking over? Because the plants are in relationship to land. When those relations are broken, say, uh, when you remove all the people who are tending a forest, or you remove all the people who are caring for the land and caring for the plants, thinking about colonization, dispossession. When you raise the land, when you develop the land, when you turn the land to rubble, of course, you've changed those relations, right? You've altered those relations. So for me, the problem of invasive invasive species is a problem of human colonization. Mm -hmm. All these spaces are kinds of gardens, and those gardens need gardeners. Um, But we don't have to garden as if Uh, We're recreating some Edenic narrative of nature enclosed within some garden, some pure, pristine nature that um, is supposed to um, enthrall us with its beauty. Um, No, what what I'm asking for is a kind of a way to radicalize our relationship, to to encourage plants to grow where where they may be. (laughs) <laughs> where our laws say they shouldn't. So things like guerrilla gardening, uh, seed bombs that activate um, indigenous seed on agricultural lands that are uh, full of Monsanto crops. Mm-hmm. Or um, so these ways of ways where we can activate a kind of conspiracy with the plant. Conspiracy because it it holds the word con which is to breathe together. We need to actually conspire with plants' will, plants' desire. What do plants want? Where do they want to grow? How do they want to heal the soil? How do they want to move the water? A livable world uh, would, would have cities where every surface of every building is an affordance for a plant to, for a seed to arise, for a plant to take root, to flourish and to die. 
And so part of the part of the work of recognizing plant liveliness is also recognize how important plant death is. To mm-hmm. instead of clearing away the, uh, dead matter from the, out of a parkland or clearing away the, uh, dead matter from a garden, how do we fold the dying matter back into the soil to help plants complete their cycle? There's some beautiful, beautiful examples um, about plant people conspiracies. My, one of my favorite is um, at the Land Institute in Kansas, where Wes Jackson has succeeded in back-crossing uh, grains like wheat mm-hmm. to their perennial ancestors, like grasses that would grow on the plains. And so what he's trying to do is create grains that could feed people but that don't require annual tilling of the soil. They don't require new seed each year. They, um, his um, perennial grains have rhizomes that run 20 feet deep into the soil. They hold the water. They hold the soil down from erosion. They uh, encourage incredibly diverse uh, uh, flora, microflora to, to thrive in the soil bed. They keep the soil alive and if you can regenerate the grasslands that gave rise to the plains, you'd actually be able to bring back the buffalo. Mm-hmm. Because you do need, you actually, you do need animals to trample on, uh, on, the, on these grasses in order to, begin, to break and begin the new cycle each year. So there's a way of reimagining agriculture that not only feeds people, but also nourishes the soil and, and brings back um, animals that we've lost to land. And so there's a real transformation in our thinking, um, and it's a kind of thinking that isn't about, you know, there is no, once you perennialize the grains, there's no patent <laughs> you can make, right? There's no, you can't profit. It's not about uh, one seed company profiting over and over again. You've actually created, you're, about, you're growing a rhizome that will regenerate itself. And so, Here's where you get you realize that the profit motive of, of a capital, of capitalist extractive agriculture, um, chemical intensive fertilizers, pesticides, and others are really bent not on feeding people and not on the long term survival of our soils, but actually on extracting uh, profit. And so mm. the Planthropocene would hear none of that. <laughs> yeah. we, if you in the Planthropocene, if you have to consult the plants uh, to do any to make any intervention, right? We 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 wouldn't have paved, we wouldn't there'd be no paving over of wetlands there would be no uh, raising of the forest there would be no industrial agriculture we'd actually have to transform our lives we'd all have to become gardeners um i don't know if this is just me but it seems like a lot of like younger people like people my age i'm like 20 i'm 22 um like <laughs> the plants are very popular right now yeah yeah um and I kind of I wonder for me I'm like okay maybe this is a good thing maybe like people my age are like starting to like maybe sort of catch uh catch this idea of like uh kind of like co-flourishing and like the like opportunity to have a like reciprocal relationship with with a plant that might not be out like in like what you would think is like the the wilderness or nature but like you know like in your apartment or something like that and I'm wondering if that kind of gives you uh, maybe the same sense of like hope. Mm-hmm. Well, so I mean, it's some of those 
Oh, interesting. I've been, I've been looking at social media a lot for how plant stories circulate. Mm-hmm. And it's like Instagram has all of these, these massive, massive people with massive, massive followings, and they're just posting pictures of plants with their plants. You know, we had the animal turn in, in the humanities and social sciences, and currently there is a plant turn, and people are looking for the plants because they are, whether they're conscious of it or not, they're aware that there's something hidden from their everyday experience that may have the potential to transform our future. That was Terror Informer Amanda Rooney speaking with Natasha Myers, a professor at York University. For more information on Natasha Meyer's work, check out our website at terrainforma.ca. yourself and what has been your most memorable relationship with a plant? Hi, my name is Sonic Patel. Uh, I guess I'm going to talk about the houseplant that I killed two years ago. Uh, this was the first houseplant that I was ever singularly responsible for. I got it from my old office that I shared with terror informer Elizabeth Dowdell and it was a little African violet and we took care of it and we watered it and it stayed on our ledge. And then we overwatered it because we didn't tell each other when the watering schedule was. So we both would just water it um, every week. And it got waterlogged and it died. And for me, it was very memorable. One is a reminder of my own mortality and just the knowing that I could be overwatered and I could die any day. And uh, two, just the importance of taking care of your plants. They're living things and they rely on you. And that, that power comes with a great responsibility. That's my most memorable relationship with a plant. <laughs> Curtis, what's your most memorable relationship with a plant? I have a big room full of plants at my house, and I also have a record player in the same room, and I have a record called Plantasia. And if you haven't heard of it, I highly recommend seeking it out. I forget who wrote it and who made it, but he also apparently has uh, a record that is called Lucifer's Black Mass. (laughs) And... That's also a great album, kind of weird, but uh, Plantasia, I play to my plants at least once a month, and I like it, and I hope they like it. That's my, that's really wholesome. I really <laughs> like that. <laughs> I my think plant that they're died. better for it. Because you didn't play at Plantasia, Sonic. That's, yeah, that probably is it. My... That's all the time we have for this week. <laughs> One of my best relationships with the plant is I worked for a summer at the um, Devonian Botanic Gardens out uh, just outside of Edmonton. And um, I remember at the very beginning, uh, we there was a sapling that needed to be moved, a tree sapling. So we uprooted it and we moved it. And every single day for the rest of that summer, before we got anything done, we'd drive out in the truck to the like weird random corner of the garden that we planted the sapling in and we'd go like visit it for the morning. So I hope uh, I hope Fred's still out there doing great. Uh, I haven't been back to check on him, so he probably feels very abandoned, but. What's, what's the name Fred from? Is that a reference to something or just? No, I don't know. Okay, it just seemed like a Fred <laughs> tree to you? Yeah, I think so. It sounds kind of like the giving tree. It does, yeah. 
wow, and I'm that horrible child from the book that like forgets about it and then goes away and comes back expecting apples. Well, (laughs) (laughs) this has been Curtis, Hannah, and Sonic talking about our most memorable relationships with plants. that's all the time we have for this week. If you have questions or comments, send us an email to tara at cgsr.com or tweet at Tara Informa. Thank you to all our volunteers that contributed to this week's episode, Hannah Cunningham, Sophia Osborne, Amanda Rooney, and Kezia Diaz. I've been your host, Sophia Osborne. And I'm Carter Grazitza. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next week right here on Tara Tara Informa. Informa.